Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. And on this edition we'll feature part three of the life of Darwin, horizontal gene jumping, the little prince saves the world, and the heat wave. But first up, here's the news. Natural genetic modifications. Widespread Horizontal Transfer of Retrotransposons was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in December 2012. The study by the Adelaide and Flinders Universities and the South Australian Museum suggests that a quarter of the cow's genome comes from reptiles. Now, you may be thinking, all mammals evolve from reptiles, so why is this remarkable? The strange thing is, These genes haven't come from the cow's reptilian ancestors, passed down vertically from parent to child through the ages. Instead, these reptile genes have come horizontally. By horizontal, biologists mean that the genes enter the gene pool without mutating from a mother or father. Instead, they've been introduced by an outside organism that probably feeds on both cows and reptiles. Biologists have seen genes transferred horizontally between microorganisms by retroviruses, and of course copying this mechanism is the basis for genetic engineering. However, in this case, the best guess is that the reptile protein BOV-B seems to have been implanted in the cows and other vertebrates by ticks. BOV-B is a retrotransposon, or jumping gene, that reproduces itself within a genome. It's been found in ruminants, marsupials, scaly reptiles, monotremes, and African mammals. However, when you draw up an evolutionary tree, BOV-B is all over the place, showing no respect for lines of inheritance and the way that species are related. The researchers conclude that not only have reptilian BOV-B sequences been inserted into mammals' genomes by ticks, or something like them, but that this has happened at least nine times in the evolution of vertebrates. Their work shows that nature has been shuffling bits of DNA between species for the last couple of hundred million years, to the extent that in the cow, 25% of its genome is only there because it was inserted, most likely transferred from a reptile. So when they include African mammals, do they also mean humans? Well, 50% of our genome is repetitive, some of which is definitely jumping genes that encode their own machinery, just like the BOV-B does. The team's next project is to find out if any horizontal transfer of jumping genes has occurred in humans, and, as this seems likely, to identify which species' genes have jumped into our genome. An Apophis didn't hit the Earth. 
The asteroid came close enough to let astronomers rule out the chance that it will hit us in 2036, and to tell us that its path will take it further away from the Earth than it is now. In the first week of 2013, NASA's 70-metre Goldstone Radio Telescope Dish in California and optical telescopes from the Magdalena Ridge Observatory in New Mexico and the Pan Stars Observatory in Hawaii took a close look at the 270-metre asteroid. They were able to calculate that the chances that it will hit the Earth in 2036 are less than 1 in 10 million. Apophis was discovered in 2004, and it made the news because the first observations of its orbit looked like it had a 1 in 40 chance of smashing into the Earth in the year 2029, wiping out cities if it hit land, and causing tsunamis if it hit the ocean. Later observations and calculations showed that it would miss the Earth in 2029, but it could pass close enough that Earth's gravity would change the asteroid's orbit to make it crash into the Earth in 2036. Astronomers call the area of space when an orbit could have its motion bent towards us by Earth's gravity a keyhole. The latest observations show that Apophis missed the keyhole this time round, and so it will be nowhere near the Earth in 2036. Astronomers will keep watching to make sure nothing else nudges the asteroid in our direction. It's thought that the huge mystery explosion in Tunguska near Siberia in 1908 was a small asteroid hitting the Earth with the force of a nuclear weapon. The next Planetary Defence Conference will be held in April in Arizona. The greatest danger is from the killer asteroids we haven't found yet. So in 2017, the Sentinel Space Telescope will be launched to find these estimated 500,000 near-Earth asteroids. And it's not being sent by a nation-state or an international organisation, but by a private organisation. The Space Telescope is being built by the non-profit B612 Foundation in partnership with Ball Aerospace. The B612 Foundation is a private organisation dedicated to protecting the Earth from asteroid strikes. They hope to be able to significantly alter the orbit of an asteroid in a controlled manner so that they have the skills to deflect a killer asteroid should they find one. The Sentinel Infrared Telescope will be launched on a Falcon 9 rocket and will park itself near the orbit of Venus, where it can scan Earth's neighbourhood without fighting the sun's glare. Asteroids will appear as hotspots that will stand out against the cold of space. The B612 Foundation was founded in 2002, and it's named after the home asteroid of The Little Prince, written by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. You can find out more at b612foundation.org. Deafened mice can hear again. When you hear sound that's way too loud, Sound-sensing hair cells in the inner ear get damaged and never grow back. So if you listen to music and your ears are ringing, or a gunshot goes off too near your ears, you can have permanent loss to your hearing. Birds and fish can grow back the hair cells and restore their hearing, but mammals so far can't. Research has been studying ways to restore this ability to humans, and a new drug may repair some of the damage. In 2005, Gene therapy was able to prompt the regrowth of hair cells in the inner ears of adult guinea pigs. But a drug is more useful in a clinical setting for humans. 
So, at the Massachusetts I&E Infirmary in Boston, they found a class of drugs called gamma secretase inhibitors that could start the growth of hair cells from stem cells growing in the lab. The drugs worked by stopping the signalling of the notch protein, which determines which stem cells become hair cells and which stem cells become ear support cells. They then took the strongest gamma secretase inhibiting drug and tested it on adult mice that had been deafened with three hours of extremely loud noise. The hair cells in their inner ear grew back when the drug was injected nearby, and they regained some of their hearing. Although the treatment didn't restore full hearing, it was still significant. They applied the drug one day after the noise damaged the inner ear hair cells, so they don't know how long after the damage the drugs will still work. There's a chance that it only works when applied to freshly damaged ears, and people who have lost their hearing gradually, or some time ago, might not be able to be helped this way. However, if you're exposed to gunfire or explosions and damage your ears, then this treatment might restore your hearing on the battlefield. The article, Notch Inhibition Induces Cochlear Hair Cell Regeneration and Recovering of Hearing After Acoustic Trauma, was published in the January 2013 edition of the journal Neuron. Next, the Atomic Bonding Song by Derek Muller, as featured on his Veritasium video blog. In my outer electron shell Lies an electron all by itself I seek elation I have always felt incomplete One electron shy of 18 I the highest Electron affinity If we exchange this one electron We'll both achieve noble gas configuration And we'll release energy As ions you'll see Bonds of chemistry. 
Octet rule says atoms like eight Electrons in their outermost state I'll share mine with you I'll share with you If we both share these six electrons We'll both achieve noble gas configuration And we'll release energy about in this way I will stay crystalline with you That was the Atomic Bonding Song by Derek Muller. You can hear more at veritasium.com. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SCR, and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And now enjoy Episode 3 of Natural Selection, a radio play by Lachlan Watmore of the life, journey and discoveries of the greatest biologist of the modern era, Charles Darwin. This recording comes from a 2003 radio stream at 20 kilobits per second, so please excuse the lower quality of sound. When we left the HMS Beagle in episode 2, she was on her way to the Galapagos Archipelago. In crossing a heath, suppose I pitched my foot against a stone and were asked how the stone came to be there, I might possibly answer that for anything I knew to the contrary, it had lain there forever. 
nor would it perhaps be very easy to show the absurdity of this answer. But suppose I had found a watch upon the ground, and it should be inquired how the watch happened to be in that place, I should hardly think of the answer which I had before given, that for anything I knew, the watch might have always been there. When I was a young man, I read an excellent book by the 18th century theologian William Paley, called Natural Theology, or Evidences of the Existence and Attributes of the Deity Collected from the Appearances of Nature, which was published in 1802, seven years before I was born. Paley argued that the magnificent and unreproducible design of the universe was overwhelming evidence of a great, powerful and, above all, conscious, creative force, which many men call God. Cogs and springs, crafted metals, intricate and precisely designed, the watch must have had a maker. There must have existed at some time and at some place or other an artificer or artificers who formed it for the purpose which we find it actually to answer, who comprehended its construction and designed its use. When the Beagle was charting the part of the Argentine coast called Patagonia, I went ashore with Sims Covington, a member of the crew who had become my personal assistant. At a place called Punta Alta, we set to work unearthing the enormous bones of long dead beasts from a long, low bank of gravel near the shoreline. Before long, a pile of bones, skulls, femurs, claws, tusks, and more were piled on the beach. I soon realized that these massive creatures were no longer living. The devout industry of Archbishop Usher and Dr. John Lightfoot of Cambridge University has calculated by way of careful examination of the Bible and other works the exact date and time when the world was created. It was at 9 a.m. on Sunday, 23rd of October, 4004 B.C. There was Megatherium, the giant sloth, so large it could feed from the treetops. Toxodon, similar to a hippopotamus and other massive creatures, such as a giant armadillo the size of a large dinner table. What had happened to these animals? It's quite simple, my dear philosopher. Noah had but one day to collect all the pairs of animals for passage on the ark. He obviously missed these beasts, and they perished in the flood. My captain, do you remember the trip I made into the Andes Mountains when we stopped for six weeks in Valparaiso? I found a bed of seashells in the rocks at 12,000 feet above sea level. It would seem to indicate that most of the South American peninsula once stood under the ocean and was then pushed up into its present position. How else could seashells come to rest above the snow line? The flood covered the entire Earth. The entire Earth includes the Andes Mountains. The seashells were washed there by the floodwaters and there they came to rest. Did the flood then pile about 30 feet of overlying sediment on them, Captain? Do you doubt the word of the Lord, sir? No, Captain. I only think that the age of the Earth is greater than we've previously believed and that the Earth has been changing and continues to change. You saw the results of that earthquake in Concepcion? Your point, philosopher. The level of the land was several feet higher after the earthquake than it had been that morning. As the Beagle neared the Galapagos archipelago, doubts had begun to form in my mind about previous beliefs concerning the fixity of species and the age of the Earth. In his stubborn, fractious way, Fitzroy fed these doubts by his refusal to countenance any alternative to the scriptures, despite the growing evidence to the contrary that I was unearthing. 
The Galapagos Islands, a collection of the ugliest islands in all creation, hove into view in early September 1835. These were not the inviting, sandy-beached and coconut-palm-type island that characterized most of the Pacific. They were made of volcanic lava, black and misshapen, buckled and twisted and had little to recommend them, even in a maritime sense. They were far off the usual trading routes and were surrounded by treacherous currents. At that time, they were the property of Ecuador, whose government had sent political prisoners there, and every few weeks or so, an American whaling ship would visit to replenish her fresh water tanks. The Galapagos was also a source of fresh meat for visiting ships, courtesy of its namesake, the giant Galapagos tortoises. Hundreds of these monsters could be seen on the islands, and their size reminded me of the huge bones we had seen in Patagonia. These were not the only conspicuous reptiles of the Galapagos. Two species of iguana, the marine and the land iguana, made an impression on me. The marine lizard never ventured more than ten yards inland and fed on seaweed that grew in the rocks of the coast. Perversely, however, they appeared to actively dislike the water, only entering it for the purposes of nutrition when the seaweed on the rocks had been grazed away. I tested this theory by throwing one into a large rock pool. It immediately swam back to dry land and did so again when I repeated the experiment. However, the animals that made the most lasting impression on me, indeed, brought into sharp focus the doubts in my mind about the fixity of species, were the Galapagos finches. These drab, rather dull little birds, with their dull, rather unmusical voices, nevertheless fascinated me due to the large number of species of them. Each species appeared perfectly adapted to consuming the predominant food type on its native island. Where hard nuts and berries grew, the finches possessed large, strong beaks for cracking them. Where insects predominated, the beak was suitable for catching them. And where fruits and flowers were found, the beak of the local finch was slender and smaller. By the time we left the Galapagos, the germ of an idea was growing in my mind. Perhaps these finches had a distant ancestor, a colonizing species that flew to these islands when they erupted out of the sea from their submarine volcanoes. Perhaps this distant grandparent stock had dispersed its offspring over the various islands and, as the predominant food types on the different islands came to differ from one another, so too did the finches adapt appropriate beaks to suit their supper. Perhaps, too, an ancestral iguana stock had come to the islands, possibly floating on logs washed out to sea by a flood on the mainland. Its offspring would have separated into the marine and land iguanas, each adapted to survival in its own particular habitat. But what had enabled them to change? What mechanism existed that allowed living things to change into other living things? After another year, the beagle returned to England, after stopping at many more places, including Tahiti, New Zealand and Australia. The latter did not impress me greatly in terms of her natural beauty. However, the exotic fauna of the Antipodes further reinforced my growing heresy. After landing in Port Jackson, I hired a man and two horses in Sydney and set off into the countryside. There, I was lucky enough to see a group of platypuses diving into a river. 
this egg-laying mammal is certainly the most extraordinary creature I have ever encountered. Well, it would appear that after a full day's ride we have yet to see a kangaroo. Haven't seen all that many around these past few years, mate. Not since people started bringing greyhounds from England. The emus and wallabies are pretty scarce too. Because of white man's hunting? Yes. When I first came to the colony, kangaroos and emus were everywhere. But now... I came to realise that wherever the European has trod, death seems to pursue the Aboriginal creatures, human and non-human. Now the emu was banished to a long distance from him, and the kangaroo had become scarce. To both, the English greyhound had become highly destructive. The Aboriginal people of Australia had become outcasts in their own country, their numbers rapidly decreasing. I was not sorry to leave Australia. After nine more months of sailing through the Indian Ocean, around the Cape of Good Hope, and once more into the Atlantic, we finally returned to England on the 2nd of October, 1836, nearly five years after our departure. Thus ended the great formative experience of my life, the five years that would shape myself in the way I would be remembered. I was just 29 years old and never to leave the shores of England again. Listen next week for episode 4 of Natural Selection, The Life, Journey and Discoveries of Charles Darwin by Lachlan Watmore. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. You can send your congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement and helpful suggestions to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. Look for Diffusion Science Radio on Facebook and contribute to the conversation. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Dominic Cochran, Tim Baines, Adam Mark, and Lachlan Watmore. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SER in Sydney, and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar